Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case file number 02, Betty Gore, part 2. So this begins our part 2 of our two-part series of Betty Gore and Candy Montgomery. And where we ended part 1 was the cliffhanger where Mr. Crowder basically tells the jury that Candy did kill Betty, but it was in self-defense that Candy had an affair with Betty's husband. So on this day, which was Tuesday, October 21st, this was the day that Crowder goes to the jury and basically drops the bombshell. But it isn't till the next day, which is Wednesday, October 22nd, that Alan Gore takes the stand. Right. So Crowder announced this in his opening statement. Correct. Which is not really what you're supposed to do. So people were upset by that. He just dropped the bomb and mic drop and walked away because there was no information that day about this alleged affair, no proof to this affair. And what is a little interesting is that Candy's not the first one on the stand to say how the affair went. Alan Gore is. So... He takes the stand on Wednesday, and he's the first person to take the stand that day, and he talks about the affair very openly. And I did also get some of the details of the affair from Texas Monthly article, because he didn't go into as much detail, but I wanted to kind of go into detail about the affair to kind of explain how it happened and kind of where Candy's mind was so you could kind of understand the way it was. Because in my opinion, after reading it, the affair was kind of weird. It's kind of a weird affair. It wasn't your typical affair. The Gore family and the Montgomery family went to church together. So Candy was familiar with Alan and Betty and the family. So it wasn't like she Candy met Alan for the first time and was like, wow, this guy's amazing. I have to be with him. So the murder happened in 1980. And in the summer of 1978, Candy and Alan were playing a volleyball game at church. And there was something about the way he looked that day. He was sweaty. And Top gun, girl. (laughs) She knocked the ball to him. And he knocked it to her. And they both fell in the sand. And it was like a moment they had. And she smelled him. And he smelled very attractive. And there was... Try not to laugh. Like, you know... That's a scene from a movie. Yes, very much so. You know, there was like hearts and stars and for some reason she just saw him in a different way and so she immediately after that game goes and starts telling some of her friends that she thinks that Betty Gore's husband Alan is so attractive all of a sudden and you know how I described him in the beginning that he was nerdy and pocket protector all day (laughs) in the nerd watch yeah I mean he just all of a sudden she saw him differently so she told her friends you know he was smelling very sexy and she thought about him for days afterwards Of course, he knew nothing of this, but she was, I mean, her daughter and his daughter were friends, so she was interacting with him days after that, but he, of course, had no idea. So she would flirt with him any time that she would drop her daughter off with him or pick up the daughter. Any interaction she had, she was very flirtatious towards him, to which he didn't really realize at the time Mm -hmm. what was going on because he did not 
understand. Did she flirt with him in front of his wife? That wasn't said. Okay. She said that anytime, I would imagine not because it was just her picking the daughter. Oh, up, yeah. so I don't know if they were both there or not. Okay. So Candy really wanted fireworks. When she was around him, she wanted that fireworks feeling. She wanted the spark that she wasn't getting at home from Pat. She wanted to feel something. So she decided, I'm going to confront Alan and I'm going to tell him how I feel. And I'm going to propose to him that maybe we can have an affair. Like, I think this sounds fun. Okay. So they're at a church function. Okay. <laughs> and Pat is not there and Betty's not there. Oh. And she goes over to... Divine intervention? I guess so. Okay. She goes over to Alan's car. She gets in the passenger seat, doesn't look at him, stares out her window, and tells him, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're very attractive. And she's looking out the other window when no, she's she, saying it? Yeah, she is. He's looking at her, and she's looking out the window. <laughs> she will not look at him. And she tells him, I think we should have an affair. I want a no-strings-attached affair. No I love yous, no divorcing our spouses, just really good sex. That's all I want from you. This is how I feel. This is what I want. I'm propositioning you. And then she left. Didn't even wait for him to respond. Didn't look or anything. Just kept looking <laughs> out the window and just got out of the car. She couldn't even look at him. While she propositioned him and sitting next to him in his car, she wow. just she gets up and leaves. And he does, while he's on the stand, he says, I was very taken aback by the request. And I was like, I can't believe she asked me this. Why would a woman besides Betty want to have sex with me? And Betty only wants to have sex to have kids. So why would someone actually want to have sex with me? So this just doesn't seem right. So a few weeks go by and he thinks about it. And then he decides to talk to Candy. So he calls Candy and tells her, I really don't think this is a good idea. I don't think that we should do this. I don't want to hurt Betty. I think that it's wrong. And she, Betty, had an affair on Alan where they used to live. Oh, I didn't know that one either. I didn't and see that. he said that it hurt him very badly. And the pain that Betty caused him, he would not want to put on yeah, her. Yeah, he knew, he knew what it felt like to be on the other end. So. so he's like, I just think it's not a good idea. And she's like, I'm really sorry. I won't mention it again. So that evening, they see each other at church. Same situation. Candy's in her car. Alan promptly gets in her car. Are you kidding me? Candy looks out the other window. <laughs> and Alan sits next to her and tells her, you know, I'm really sorry again. She's like, no, really, it's fine. But then he leans in and kisses her. Hmm. And then he leaves the car. So he tells her, I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm going to kiss you. He never kissed her when they were friends before, but now he does. Maybe he was thinking of her feelings, you know, like. But wouldn't that just make it worse, though? I mean, he would think so. And he knows that she put herself out there to tell him. Maybe yeah. he feels bad for rejecting her. Or maybe saying, you know, I'm going to kiss you, but that's all you're getting. Maybe. So Alan goes to work. Candy lives her life. A week goes by and he's at work in McKinney. And he calls Candy and says, why don't you come up and we're going to meet at a little body shop in McKinney where I'm at. Getting my car fixed. I really want to talk to you. Well, that day just so happened to be Candy's birthday. So she meets him. And on her way there, she thinks, like, I'm so foolish for thinking that he would ever want to have an affair with me. He's one of my friend's husbands, and our daughters are friends. Why did I ever think that was a good idea? Yeah. So she walks into this lunch meeting, whatever you want to call it, thinking, like, I was really, really dumb. So I know yeah. I'm going to hear that this was just the worst idea. So she gets to the auto repair shop while his car's getting fixed, and he gets in the car, and he gives her a birthday card. So he knew it was her birthday. I was going to ask that, but clearly he, he knew. Okay. He did. He gives her a birthday card. And on the front of it, it says, for the last of the Red Hot Lover. Oh. And when she opens the card, there's a box of Red Hots. 
And so she's like, okay, so what does this mean? He's like, let's go have lunch. So they go to a little cafe in McKinney. They eat and they just talk about everything but each other. They talk about their kids, their life, work. All of the things they have in common. Exactly. At the end of the meal, Alan basically told her, you know, I've never really had an affair before. You know, it sounds kind of tempting. And she tells him, oh, I haven't had an affair either. You know, I'm, maybe it would be fun. But then she tells him, if you don't go to bed with me pretty soon, you'll never be able to live up the expectation I have of you in bed. She is crazy. So she basically says, it's now or never. Yeah. And if you don't, then I'm never going to know what you could be in bed. And what I think you're going to be is really good. So like if the you volleyball version. <laughs> with all the stars <laughs> and the hearts. And he's like, yeah, I know. I thought about that. You know, that you had this expectation of me and I really should prove that to you. So Are they like 12? I know. It's very awkward. That's it what I'm saying. It's awkward. very Because usually with some affairs, they're like so hot and heavy. It just happens. Like usually they don't talk about it. It just happens. And then they talk then about what the to aftermath. do after. Right. Exactly. But this has a lot of buildup. It is very unusual. It is. So then they start calling each other. Like late at night at home when their spouses are gone or... Candy would go hide in the hall bathroom and they would like talk about it, plan it. When are we going to meet? Well, we could meet here. Well, we can't meet on these days. And so they're just making it this long, drawn out, very odd thing instead of just doing it and seeing if it's worth it. They say, okay, the fair is going to start on this day. (laughs) And Candy's like, great. Pat will be at work and you come to my house because Pat will be at work and the kids will be at school. So you come to my house, I'll make lunch and we'll do this. So... Al goes to her house, and she made a lasagna. And whenever he arrives, Candy is standing on their stairs in her house, and there's two big posters on the wall. And one says why, and one says why nots. And there's these lists of reasons why they should and why they shouldn't have an affair. And she's, like, listed out the reasons that they've been talking about over the last few weeks. Is she wearing a nightgown? Yes, she's wearing a nightgown. Oh, my God, she is? She is. And (laughs) she's standing up. At the stairs, so they go through the reasons of, you know, why, well, it's pleasurable and it would make both of our marriages better because we're both getting something that we're not getting in the marriage. So maybe it will make our sex lives and our marriages better because we're trying out other things and we're going to learn other things from each other and maybe that would be good. And of course, the why nots are divorce and the obvious things. So they sit down and they discuss those things and they ate. Isn't lasagna kind of heavy? Yeah. Well, then, he, then after they eat, he leaves. Okay. And says, I, I still need to think about it. I was like, oh my God. Did she so, burn the why and why not list so her husband didn't find them? And then to tape, like to put them up on the wall. Mm. So they go back to talking a few more times and then they start setting guidelines and rules. Like, okay, well. No more lists. <laughs> <laughs> no more lasagna. Gives lasagna me the Lasagna is, is too heavy for lunch. So they decide that Candy would be in charge of getting a motel room since he works. And that it would have to meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays once every two weeks, so it wouldn't be too often. And Tuesdays and Thursdays were the only days that Candy's son went to preschool because he wasn't in grade school yet. So those are the only days that she was available to do it. And they decided that on December the 12th of 1978 that they would meet at the Como Motel in Plano, which actually it's in Richardson. It is in Richardson. And it's right next to Texas Instruments, which is where It's really worked. close to that, yeah. I pass it every day on my way home from work. And the Como Motel, right? Yes. So they decide that they're going to have their first time there. 
And she looked very, very forward to it. She would prepare this lavish lunch. And I read some of the lunches and it wasn't like a sandwich. She would make spring rolls in Chinese dish or she would make chicken casserole with sides. She was coming with a whole dinner meal for lunch. So they started with their first meeting was on the 12th. And Candy described the first time to be mind-blowing. And Alan did too, because Alan said she was very experienced, which if you remember in the beginning, Candy had lots of sexual partners and her whole goal in life was to be a a wife Mm -hmm. and a mother, but she was very, (laughs) she was a hope to show. So her whole goal was to still be a hope. (laughs) So he said she would twist her bodies in ways that he'd never did before. Was she a gymnast? Like a pretzel, I guess. Is no, what you she said was she doing. was in cheerleading. Wasn't she in cheerleading? No, she wasn't. Oh. No, she didn't really say she did anything in high school but be a hoe. That's all she okay. did. So they would continue their affair like clockwork every Tuesday or Thursday every two weeks. There was a few times there where he would have to go out of town and it would be delayed and she would get mad. It would get delayed. There was one part shortly after the affair started that Betty asked Alan, like, are you messing around on me because you just seem distant and you're asking to do things in bed you didn't used to do before. So is there something you want to tell me? And he's like, no, no, no. And she's like, well, I think we should go to this marriage counseling that the church is sponsoring. And when Alan told Candy that he wanted to do that to make his marriage better with Betty, she was mad. Even though she said in the beginning, no divorcing the spouses. Exactly. This is just a physical thing. That's it. No emotion. Mm -hmm. But there's got to be emotion already if she's getting upset because she can't meet him and bringing like five course meals to the Como Motel, which you can probably rent by the hour. Well, and she said that on that first day that they actually rented it, not the day they had sex, but the first day that they met there, she was worried because when she got there, the lady asked for her driver's license and she had to pay $29 Mm -hmm. an hour. And she paid cash, she? but she was worried about giving her license because it would come back to her. So she didn't really know if she wanted to stay using that hotel. But then after the next couple of times, they didn't ask her for her license. She just paid the $29 and went to the room. And then she would call him at lunch and say, this is the room number. And he would arrive. So the affair would last 11 months. Did she say this on the stand? No. Or this was stuff that they got out of her in an interview after the fact? This was in an interview after the fact. Okay. Majority of it came from I know, after it came the fact, from the Texas the text, Monthly yes. article. Some of it did come from him on the stand. He wasn't as specific. He did say that they met at the Como Motel. They met every two weeks. That they she would bring lunch. And he didn't say there that the sex was mind-blowing. But he did say it after the Somewhere trial. Else. Yeah. So she would get mad whenever he was trying to help his wife. Actually, he was just trying to continue to get away with it probably more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. So go to counseling and make his wife happy so that he can continue with whatever it is he's doing. So after the 11 months go by, Candy starts to feel like this is becoming really boring. Oh. Like it was fun initially, but now it's like work. It's mundane. Well, you don't have and to cook a five-course meal to spring some taco bueno. No, Julia Child, calm down. Right. It's just lunch. You can bring a sandwich. Peanut butter and jelly all day. Run by the McDonald's and give him a Happy Meal at lunch. Okay. Happy Meal. (laughs) It's not a big deal. So she started feeling like anymore. And so she approached him and told him. And he's like, yeah, I agree because I've never really had sex with someone just for fun. I've only had sex with two people his whole life, Betty and her. 
So he said, the only person I've ever had sex with, I gave myself to. And I don't know how to continue this if I don't give all of me to you. I think it's better that we break it off because eventually we're going to get caught or we're going to break the guidelines. So I think it's best that we break up. So it was mutual. Yes. So back to the trial, this is where Crowder, he addresses the jury and says, so as you can see, Alan is telling you that this was a mutual breakup. And this was 11 months after it started, and it started in December of 78. So it stopped in November of 1979, and the murder happened the following year. So six months after Mm -hmm. the affair ended is whenever the murder happened. So he wants to explain that this wasn't a motive because the affair had ended. It had been long gone. So there's no reason why she would want to kill Betty to be with Alan when Alan didn't want to be with her either. And she didn't want to be with him. Yeah. Exactly. So during cross-examination, Alan said he knew of no reason why Candy would want to to kill his wife. He didn't feel that they had any problems with each other. He didn't feel that there was any motive there at all. It just didn't make sense. Alan said that day, which I think you brought up as well, the first thing he thought of when his wife didn't answer was that she had killed herself. Yeah. Because of the postpartum depression she had been diagnosed with, she was on multiple medications. And she just wasn't happy and being alone and possibly being pregnant again. Yeah. As Crowder is addressing the jury, Judge Ryan, our salty judge, salty judge, he finds Crowder $100 and sentenced him to jail. Crowder addresses the accusation that Judge Ryan gave him of possibly violating the gag order to tell Candy to do an interview. And in the process, Judge Ryan's like, why are you bringing that up? So he finds him for talking about it in court, even though proof had shown he didn't do it. So he finds him and tells him, you have a day in jail. And this will be served as soon as the trial is finished. So Crowder's earned himself a day in jail (laughs) and a $100 fine. (laughs) On the 22nd, I found a very funny thing I wanted to bring up. So they described Candy as this, you know, petite, auburn-haired woman, right, Mm-hmm. That walked to the courtroom. And so the newspaper article said that curiosity seekers, mostly older women, show up early to the courthouse. They bring their sack <laughs> lunches, their knitting materials, and their binoculars. And they stay late just to watch the auburn haired defendant whisk herself out of the courtroom and into a waiting car. That is awesome. So there's these like old biddies. They've got know, their, their knitting. You and I. Sitting yeah. out with binoculars, their lunch, and their knitting stuff, waiting just to get a closer. totally see me and you and Teresa and Savannah doing that. They aren't even in the courtroom. No. They just want to see her they when she gets her. there and when she leaves. And they want to continue with their knitting. Yes, they can't be interrupted. Um, also on that day in the courtroom, the wives of two neighbors that were asked to help clean up were put on the stand. They described the crime scene how we describe the crime scene. Mm -hmm. They just said that they also found a few bloody fingernails when they were cleaning up the utility room. So it makes you wonder, did one scratch the other and the nail was like pulled off? Did they find the entire nail or nail clippings? No, it just says bloody fingernails. I didn't read that anywhere. That's interesting. And I mean, I would think if it was a clipping, it may say like bloody fingernail. So maybe she like grabbed really hard and then it came off. Mm -hmm. Oh. And it wouldn't have been Candy's because she had all her fingernails. It had to be Betty's. Yeah. Unless Aww. her left arm that was practically severed, maybe it came off of that hand. Maybe. On the 23rd, this is from the Longview newspaper, but they're basically saying that, so evidently her attorney was swinging a baseball bat over his head and trying to recreate the whole situation at the crime scene using the baddest of the axe. And he looked at the jury and said, you don't know who attacked whom, do you? I thought that was weird. Like, 
I guess he's trying to say, like, you don't know if Candy attacked Betty or Betty attacked right. Candy at this point. Right. Because if I can wield this weapon around, so could one of them. I guess that's what he was trying to prove. Yeah. So on Friday, October 24th, Candy takes the stand and she gets up there and says that she wrestled that three foot axe from Betty. She says, and I quote, I hit her and I hit her and I hit her and I hit her. She buried her head in her hands during the graphic testimony from the pathologist and the forensic scientist who said Betty's body received more blows than necessary to kill her. So even if it was self-defense... It was a lot of anger. Yes. So Dr. Vincent DeMaio said that Betty had been struck 41 times. That is crazy. And like our last case, Mrs. White... She was only struck nine times, which we thought like nine times is a lot for, I mean, your head is not big. 41 times she was struck. So just sit there and like snap 41 times or do one thing 41 times. That, That is a lot. Yeah. And 28 of those were in the head alone. So that's three times what Joyce White went through mm-hmm. with a pipe. And this girl got chopped in the head 28 times with an axe. And Dr. DeMaio says she died as a result of massive head injuries inflicted by chop wounds. Yeah, she got her in the head with a damn axe. And he stated several gaping wounds to the head included one you could look right into the brain tissue. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Oh, no wonder they thought she shot herself. mm -hmm. Because remember, they thought she committed suicide or that someone had shot her. She shot herself in the head, I guess. because Because the whole left side of her face was gone. He stated Betty's right eye had collapsed into what was once a sinus cavity. So she demolished. Yeah. She demolished her entire support system of her eye was just demolished. Yes. The orbital gateway. (laughs) And her left arm was broken. So that's why it looked like it was kind of like floating. So she hacked the bone. Yes. She hit her so many times in the left side in that arm that she broke the bone. She, with an axe. And this is a humorous. I've broken it. It is a very hard bone. And it's not funny. It's not humorous at all. It would take more than one easy with an axe to actually break it. And this is only a three foot axe. So it's really not that heavy. One of the three major blows to the head could have knocked her out completely. And Dr. DeMaio stated more force than necessary was used. So obviously, I mean, it was, it was bad. She was mad. And Betty also had cuts on her thighs, forearms, and palms. So definitely defensive wounds. Wow. I mean, if she had, if she had them on her arms and her hands and her palms, she's obviously putting her so hands up. So she's standing up, up or potentially. Or she's laying down. Yeah. And she's obviously defending herself. She's trying to defend herself. So if you're hitting someone and you know that person, right? I mean, she mm-hmm. knew Betty and she's trying to hurt you. If she's putting her hands up in defense that she, okay, I'm done. Like I'm putting my hands up and. Or maybe she's just trying to catch the axe. Like if I catch it by the handle or something, you know, and just That's misjudges. That's maybe true. she'd already been head in the head. She can't really see. So she's just trying to grab for whatever she can find. That's true. Just thinking if they put their hands up, you're like, okay, are you done? Like I have the axe. But I think that's just a natural, you know, think about like if you get scared, I think it's just a natural reaction to, oh my God, what's happening? Your hands just go up. So that to me is self-defense, right? Whether or not she's physically trying to keep the axe from hitting her, she's probably just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Why is my friend trying to kill me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Irving Stone, who was the chief of physical evidence, reiterated that The killer inflicted far more damage or injury than is needed to take the life of that person. So there was just, it was an overkill. Yep. 
I mean, when she was knocked unconscious, at least, and just called the police and said, she attacked me. I attacked her back. She's now unconscious. I don't know if she's dead or not, but... but come get me and there's a baby here too, but this is what happened. And she probably would have got off just fine, but now she's on trial for killing her. And even if she still would have died, at least they would have known what happened. Yeah. So that day, prosecution rests and the defense starts to open testimony. So whenever Candy took the stand, her story of what happened is that Candy had Betty and Alan's daughter, Alyssa. Mm -hmm. And she went to go see Betty that day after she taught Bible school at church that morning. And Candy said, I went to her house to pick up a bathing suit because I was, I had Alyssa and I was supposed to take her to swimming lessons. I didn't have her bathing suit. And also Alyssa was scared to put her head underwater. And so they rewarded her by putting her head underwater by giving her peppermints. So she needed to pick up the peppermints and pick up the bathing suit from Betty's house. So she said, I went over there. And when I got there, we talked for a little bit. They got a new puppy. I saw the puppy. I played with the puppy in the backyard. And I really wanted to see Bethany, their one-year-old daughter, but she was sleeping. So Candy said she was sitting in the living room and Betty just asked her, are you having an affair with Alan? She just flat out asked her, you know, is this what you're doing? And Candy said, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not having an affair. And Betty said, I know you have either you had an affair or you're having an affair because I read the letters. So apparently they were writing letters back and forth. Okay. And there was also the card that he gave her. Right, the birthday, birthday card with the yes. red hots. So at some point, Betty found these and had known for a while what was going on. So I'm sure that added to her depression. Mm -hmm. And so Candy finally admitted, yes, you know, there was an affair, but it was over a long time ago. And so Betty is upset. So she leaves the room and she comes back with an axe. And she says, I don't want you to ever see him again. You can't have him. And Candy said the two women started talking more about the affair. And she explained how it happened and said, you know, I don't want him. It's been over. It wasn't anything. It didn't really mean anything. It was just sex. So please, like, I don't want him. And Betty looked really hurt and very distressed. So Candy put her arm out to touch Betty and said, you know, I'm really, really sorry that this happened. And she backed up and she said, you know, don't touch me. But, you know, you can't have him. So Candy's like, that's fine. Just let me, just give me the bathing suit for Alyssa I'll, and I'll leave. And so Betty walks past her and places the axe in the kitchen and goes into the laundry room. So Candy follows. She goes to walk, walks right past the axe, goes into the utility room and gets the bathing suit and reminds her about the peppermints. So Betty leaves and comes back with the axe. And she's standing in the doorway and she says, you can't have him. And Candy said, Betty said, I've got to kill you. You slept with my husband. I'm going to kill you. So Candy said, Betty hit her in the head with the axe. So Betty picks up the axe and says, you know, I've got to kill you. And they start struggling back and forth with the axe. And Betty is swinging the axe and she's trying, she's trying to get Candy. She hits Candy right at the top of the head. Now she was examined by a doctor 13 days later when she was arrested and there was no head wound. Could have healed, but there was nothing there. Yeah, but if you get hit, hit in the head, even barely with an axe, you're going to have a bruise. I don't know. My bruises don't go away within a couple of weeks. I guess it depends on how deep the bruise is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, did I it know. cut her or did she just get a bruise or does it say? She just says, she just says that, um, that Betty hit her in the head with the axe. And that she didn't reveal the wound, but she did have it. And that Betty swung the axe well, again. But there's no proof of a wound. There's no proof of a okay. wound. Okay. And then she said that Betty swung the axe again, and it bounced off the linoleum, and it cut her toe. But that also wasn't seen or revealed. And no wound was found either place upon examination when she was arrested. So Candy and Betty struggle wildly for the axe back and forth. Candy's pleading to her to let me go, let me go. 
and um, you know it doesn't have to be this way. Let me go. And so Betty leans into Candy and tells her to shush. She basically tells her to shush. Oh no, she shushed. And her? apparently this triggers something inside Candy that she can't explain, and she feels herself fighting a lot harder for the axe. And she gets the axe. Candy hits Betty somewhere in the back of the head or on the side of the head. So Candy states while on the stand, I was fighting to control her and I hit her somewhere in the back of the head or the side of the head. And after she hit her, took such force that Candy fell to the floor during the fight. And she was trying to get to that back door that the neighbor was trying to get in and it was locked. So she was trying to get to the door and there's all this blood and the knob is slippery and it wouldn't turn. So they start fighting again. After she hit her, she dropped the axe. And she's trying to go to the door. Because Betty kind of so got So the blood that she has on her is Betty's blood, not Candy's. At the time, yes. Oh, I mean, she said that she, she had a head wound and that her toe was cut. So then that means if she's inferring that she was bleeding, then after 13 days, there should have still been some sign of an injury there. Correct. And if she cut her toe with an axe, I mean, the force coming down, I'm Wouldn't sure it wasn't just... Wouldn't pinky toe off? <laughs> Just a little, maybe that's the fingernail they found. Maybe it was actually a toenail. Oh, could have been. Could have been. So she, Candy falls to the floor. She's trying to get out and she can't. So they start fighting again and Candy grabbed the axe and she hit her. And she stated that she remembers being so angry at her because she thought, you're just messing up my life. And she remembers being so afraid that she would never be able to get back up. And her voice cracked on the stand and she stated, Afterwards, I walked around and looked at myself and discovered the blood. I felt so dirty and so ashamed and so guilty. The blood was making me sick. I went in and took a shower, still wearing my clothes. Okay. So that last hit that she got in was what did it in. So the 41st hit was finally her limit. Yeah. So after she gets, after she gains access to that axe and she gets it back, she's looking at her thinking, you just messed up my life. And she just goes bonkers. Plus she was shushed. Yes. And that shush is very important, which I'll get to. So she, this was just while she was on the stand. So she takes a shower with her clothes on. She leaves her clothes on. And she stated she made a half-hearted attempt to clean up the house, but forgot about the axe and the one-year-old baby that was in the bedroom. How do you forget a little baby girl? And so there had to be screaming going on whenever, I mean, surely Betty was screaming for her life. So I wonder... Like, I don't know what the layout of the house is. How far was the laundry room from the baby's bedroom? I'm not sure. Okay. I think it kind of made a U shape from the way I remember the house being laid out with it being such a small room. And then you had to kind of go out of the utility room and go around the kitchen, go through the kitchen, through the living room, back into the bedrooms. Okay. So it was in the laundry room was in the front or the back of the house and the bedrooms were in the front. Correct. Because it went straight out into the garage. If you think about most bedrooms are mostly in the front. And this was a Fox and Jacobs home. So I'm not sure. In most of the Fox and Jacobs homes, the bedrooms are in the front of the house and everything else is in the back. Right? Okay. Yeah. So Candy says she drove home and she was thinking, I did not want to be a part of this. I just wanted to be normal. So she says she goes home and she bandaged her toe. She rinsed out her light cotton shirt. And put it back on. She put on a new pair of blue jeans and she went back to the church where she was teaching and there was a luncheon. And when she got there, they asked her, you know, why did it take you so long? And she told them a lie. She was trying to pick up Father's Day cards. And when she got there, she looked at her watch and she realized her watch had stopped. So she realized she was running late. So when she found out the real time, she went back. So this is the days before cell phones and all that. So, Correct. So yeah. it's not like she would have been able to just look at her phone and see what time it was or... 
someone calling her, where are you? So Right. So she told him that friends that she had lunch with that day said she was calm at the luncheon. And so Candy said she was really angry that it had happened. And it seemed so pointless. She stated, I didn't want Alan. I tried to tell her, but she put me in that position. So Crowder walks up to the stand while she's saying this, takes an axe, the axe, and shoves it in her face and says, you killed her with this, didn't you? So Candy starts screaming and yelling, covering her face with her hands in a very similar way that Betty Gore probably did and starts screaming. And She thinks he's going to start hitting her with the axe right then and there? I, I think it took her back to oh, that moment. Okay. And so she was like freaking out. She was crying and screaming and has her hands up. And so they dismiss her from the stand. She's too upset. Because she that couldn't. Yeah. That was the end of her testimony. So during cross examination, Candy admitted to the district attorney that she did have an affair with Alan and that the bloody fingerprint did match hers. And the DA told her, So if we hadn't found that fingerprint, you wouldn't have told anyone. And she said no. She would have continued to cover it up. So she would have continued to go on that. And I think in the the way that it sounds, sounds like to me that she's like, this is her fault. She made me do it. She put me in the position. I don't want to be there. I didn't want to hit her, but she did it to me. You know, she put me in that position. I had to do what I had to do. 41 times. Yep. Over half of those in the head alone. So on October 25th, judge, our salty judge... <laughs> ordered a hearing to determine whether Candy was competent to stand trial. Because what he saw when Mr. Crowder brings up that axe and puts it in her face, she loses it. She snapped, basically, like PTSD. All of a sudden, she's back there in the moment. and So our salty judge has a little bit of a heart and thinks, well, maybe something's wrong with Miss Montgomery. Maybe there's a reason why this is happening. So I want to make sure if she's not a mental case, because if there's mentally something wrong, I don't want her to go down for something. Yeah. So when he does that, Crowder gets mad. And he accuses the judge of interfering with his questioning of witnesses. <laughs> he's he's the personal injury lawyer guy, right? Yes. So he don't know what the hell he's doing. And so whenever Judge Ryan is basically telling him you're not you're not asking the questions correctly. He was leading the witnesses. Mm-hmm. So he calls him out on it. So Crowder just looks over to the judge and says, "I won't lay down for you." <laughs> So he tells the jury to leave on that remark to leave. And he tells them, I'm holding you in contempt and you get another fine of a hundred dollars. So now, now two days in jail, $200. Yep. Poor Crowder. He needs just to go back to personal injury. Yes. So the first psychiatrist that met with candy, cause it's very, it's normal after someone has pleaded guilty or not guilty or has been charged with this, they see a psychiatrist. So they can kind of tell a baseline. Same thing that happened with our previous case. Mm -hmm. Three days later, he was seen by a psychiatrist. So Dr. Maurice Green had met with Candy 12 to 15 times since September. So this is... So she was already seeing a psychiatrist. Is that what you're saying? Well, once she was... Arrested? Once she was arrested and everything was happening... She started seeing this psychiatrist. Okay. And so she had seen him 12 to 15 times since September. Dr. Green stated she suffered from a disassociative reaction in which she detached herself from the slang. Because he stated whenever she talked about the death, she just wasn't really sympathetic. She just was very disassociated with what she did. Isn't that the way psychopaths are? Uh, Very much so. Right. 
And he stated that's why she was normal after it happened. She was able to go back to her Bible church. Unaffected. And eat lunch and be with her kids and the daughter of the woman she just murdered and act like nothing happened. And when Betty told Candy to shush, it unleashed a repressed childhood memory. So what happened is that he hypnotized her. Mr. Green? Yes, the psychiatrist. And he took her to memory back when she was young. I'm not sure exactly how old she was. And she either dropped a jar or fell on a jar and cut her head. And when she cut her head, her mom took her to the hospital. And when they were giving her stitches, a nurse was holding her down. And the nurse had her hand over her face and was was telling her, shh, don't, don't be so loud. And inside, she was hurting. And she wanted to release that, but that nurse wouldn't let her. Wow. So she had this repressed memory was, she of tra- that happening. traumatized. So when you go back to what happened, she's supposedly about what she's saying. She's hit in the head and then she's told to shush. And those two together put her in that time when she was hurting and this okay. person wasn't letting her. And she just unleashed her rage out on that incident on poor Betty Gore. So that explains the 41 times then. Correct. Okay. It wasn't really Betty. She was... It makes sense. I mean, it fits with... The way she was able to act afterwards and the amount of time she was able to hit her end with the force. Correct. Too. So when the psychiatrist reveals this, the judge says, yeah, absolutely. We're not doing anything further until I see a competency hearing. I understand that she's been through this and I understand that these things have happened, but I need to make sure she's competent because what she just told everyone and what she released to the jury should not be used if she's not competent. So the next day, Candy's given a competency hearing and Green does it because he's familiar with her and she will open up to him more because they've made Mm -hmm. that relationship. And he stated that she was aware when she was doing it that she was hacking her to death, but everything seemed to be in slow motion, almost as if she was a spectator. And Dr. Green stated a disassociative reaction is not unusual that we all have potentials for acts of violence. She was acting in an instinctual context. So she was doing something that she felt she was supposed to do, and any one of us could have done that in that situation. If any of us had a repressed memory or had a disassociative reaction to something, we are all capable of that. It's something in our brain, and it's normal. So she... That's scary. Yeah, it's a little scary. Don't piss me off. If Candy is found incompetent after the competency hearing, then she'll be sent to a mental institution. But if she's found competent, then the trial will continue that Monday. Mm -hmm. So while the salty judge is going through everything with the court, Judge Ryan and Mr. Crowder get into a heated debate. I'm not surprised by that at all. And he is given a contemption citation. It didn't explain what the exchange was about, but it was no, a No, because he exchange. already has two. Mm-hmm. And he ordered him to go to jail until it resumes on Monday. So he said, go to jail. So he has I didn't to spend see the weekend in jail. <laughs> go to jail until we resume on Monday. And if she's found incompetent, then you will leave. But whether we go back to trial, I don't want to see you till... The trial resumes. Correct. Does the two days get taken off while no. he's in the... week? No, this is in addition to the two days. Okay. So they recessed at 345 that Friday, and he fined him another $100. So that's $300 he's now been fined. What's funny is he only spent an hour and a half in the jail because John Onion, the chief judge of Texas Court Appeals, quickly denied what happened. John Onion, the chief judge of Texas Court Appeals, gets the appeal that Don Crowder wrote that he didn't think it was fair, and he agreed, and he drew up a writ of habeas corpus that basically... 
his skills are much lower and that Judge Ryan should have helped him a little bit and right. understand that. But the judge was very upset about it because he said if he comes into my courtroom, he, he better know what the he's rules. doing. And if yeah. he doesn't, then that's on him. Yeah. So he only had to stay there. He's not there to train. You should already have all that training. So on Monday, Dr. Thomas Thornton reveals his examination that he did on Candy. He was the psychiatrist that deemed her incompetent or competent. Which one do you think she is after her actions? I think she's competent. You are correct. Um, he found her to be, quote, fully understand the charges against her and able to communicate rationally with her lawyers and judge. So Judge Ryan says, as a result of the psychiatrist's findings, the court rules the defendant is competent to stand trial. So they finish the cross-examination, they finish everything, and they do they prepare for closing arguments the next day. Because by the time they got the results on Monday, I guess it was late Monday. So they just had a short term that day. This wasn't like a holiday where you're, they have to wait. It's to not. They were blood. not. They may have been preparing for Halloween. I mean, Halloween was only a few Fair days enough. away. So. so the next day, October 29th, uh, the jury of nine women and three men. Before you hear the results, hearing that there were nine women and three men, do you think women would have been harsher on her or more lenient on her because she was a woman? I don't really know because this was in the 80s, too. you got to mm -hmm. remember the time frame. I really, I don't know, actually. I can tell you this. If I were on the jury, I wouldn't believe her shitty story about what Betty did. I mean, I maybe buy a little bit of it that Betty did find out and she went and got the axe. Maybe Candy went and got the axe. I don't know. But I think I would just send her to prison. I would be pretty harsh on her mm -hmm. personally. I feel the 41 same. 41 times, detached or not. And I hate that you said that everybody has the capability of doing that. I hope I don't. Hopefully he's wrong and this was 80 science and now they'd be like, hell no. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you have some traumatic experience in your childhood that you're repressing, then everybody has that possibility, right? Mm -hmm. But I would be, I would probably go pretty harsh on her. She left the damn baby in there crying and wept all day long. To me, that's really bad too. That hurts my heart. So, so the nine women and three men, they are on the jury. They do the closing arguments, which started at 9 a.m. Candy was given uh, two lie detector tests. One by the first psychiatrist that she saw multiple times and one by the, the guy that checked her for competency, mm -hmm. Dr. Thornton, to make sure that she wasn't kind of lying either way or manipulating it. And she passed them all by saying that she said that she was not the aggressor, that she did not But if she really her. believes that, exactly. if she it doesn't, doesn't matter. If she feels like she was in a position she had to defend herself, then she's going to do whatever she needed to do and yeah. not feel guilty about it. So... One little thing happened. There was a filming outside the courthouse on one of the days that Candy was going into the courtroom. So it was a few days before she came out and said her story of what happened. So when you think of her, she's the, they describe her as this petite, auburn-haired, like 80s perm hair, you know, really, yeah. really short, big glasses. Big glasses, which was the thing then. We've got pictures um, of her. A pointy nose, like... Just an average woman. And this reporter walked up to the car. And as Candy gets out, she's walking towards the courtroom. And the reporter is walking backwards, right? Because he's filming her. She's walking in. As he's walking backwards, he kind of stumbles a little bit. And she proceeds to put her face in his camera and say, I hope you fall. So the prosecution shows that and says Candy may say that she only did this in self-defense, but she has a lot more aggression and she is a very violent person. I mean, number one, she stabbed her or she axed her 41 times. Now she's hoping that this person that she doesn't know 
gets injured just because he's filming her. And he may be on her side. She doesn't know. Yeah. She puts herself in his camera. Like, she leans herself forward, looks in the camera, and says, I hope you fall. She's a psychopath. I agree. So the next day, which is October 30th, the jury deliberates for three hours, and they find her not guilty. Damn it. So Disappointed, as, America. Don't worry. The town was really, really upset. And as Candy and her husband are leaving the courtroom, spectators are rushing the car, yelling, murder, murder, murder. Malice, malice, malice. (laughs) (laughs) And some of the reporters are going up and asking some of the spectators, like, what do you think? How do you feel? And one spectator said, how can they let a confessed murderer go free? And one woman says, now she'll be able to sleep with another woman's husband. Yeah. Because obviously she digs affairs. The prosecutors leave the courtroom. They don't get any any comment to the reporters. Reporters have nothing on them. Crowder was very excited to be in front of the cameras. Of course he was. Because, because this... <laughs> God. This personal injury lawyer mm-hmm. just won a very high-profile case with a very twisted road in it. Right. And he oh now faces a four-day jail term <laughs> after being cited two times just the last week. And he stands up with a giant smile and says, we are just very pleased, very pleased. We're proud the jury had enough courage to stand up and acknowledge the truth. I'm not going to tell you we never had any doubts, but we are happy with the results. One of the spectators uh, is from Louisville, and he tells a reporter, I was shocked and a little upset. She took a life she should pay. They'll send you to jail for stealing a five pound bag of sugar. But if you kill someone, you get off scot-free. And I thought that's very interesting, you know, when you put it that way. Yeah, it's true. You know, now if you tell them why I stole the sugar because I don't have any and I have nothing to feed my children, will they let you go? Because you have a sad reason. I mean, she's saying, I had a repressed memory I didn't know I had. She shushed me. But then she also says, she did it to me. She put me there. And I didn't want to be there. She did this to me. But she had an affair with her husband. If that hadn't happened then the whole meeting would not have ever happened anyway. If Betty was the one that started it and did get the axe, which I don't know if I believe, I go back and forth, but even if she had, she did it because Candy had an affair with her husband. So if she hadn't done that, so all that shit's on her. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And so reporters were going up and down her street when she got home and they were in her windows filming her and trying to get stories. (laughs) And the reporters say she was drinking champagne and smiling in her home And a news reporter came to her door, and she did answer. And this was uh, quite comical. So she answers the door with a knife, because she was cutting up cheese, she says. Wait, wait, wait. She was cutting the cheese? She was cutting the cheese (laughs) before the reporter goes to the door. And he knocks on the door. She comes to the door with a knife. And she says, don't worry, I'm not dangerous. She is very theatrical. And she says, over the last few months, it didn't matter the verdict because I still had to live with this. I'm glad I don't have to go to prison and I can meet with my psychiatrist on a weekly basis. Is she banging the psychiatrist now, too? He's married, so obviously. Probably. So that's that's the verdict. So not guilty. Not guilty on means of self-defense. I believe she went there, and I believe that Betty probably had enough. Mm -hmm. And this was her opportunity to ask her, and I believe she asked her. And I believe she got upset and maybe she was like, I don't want you seeing him again. And I'm going to mean business. I'm going to go get the axe. I'm going to take it to her and I'm going to say, 
if you mess with Alan again, I'm going to hit you with this axe or I'll kill you or something to maybe let her know that this is real. Candy, I would think, Candy would think, who are you to tell me that I can't see him? Because remember, she was the one that instigated the affair and she was the one that didn't want them to get better. So is she thinking, wait a second, are y'all happy now? Like, what's going on? Like, maybe I could have had an affair and now you just totally threw a wrench in my plan. Now I may never get him back because yes, it may have ended, but she's still around. And I think that may have sparked some jealousy with her. And she's like, you know what, bitch? Or I'm no. about to get that axe and knock you out. Maybe Betty told Candy she might be pregnant again. Ooh. And that set her off. Because then she knew for sure that it would have to be over. Oh, you are so right. I bet that's what happened. Maybe she... Because, you Maybe. know, she said she was upset. Betty had been upset because she thought she might be pregnant. She didn't want to have any more children. She was still having postpartum depression from... The one-year-old, you know, she wasn't really happy in her marriage, but she was trying to make it work. She finds out her husband's having an affair. She decides to confide in this woman, look, you were having an affair, and I might be pregnant. And maybe that was just too much for Candy, and she just lost her shit. That's what I, I agree. And I think, because who knows, the axe could have been in the house for some other reason. Betty could have gotten it to use for any reason. Or maybe Alan used it and left it in the kitchen or in the laundry room. Yeah. But we did read that it was in a place that you couldn't see from walking into the garage from outside, from like the garage door, from the driveway. Like if you walked in from the door, you might be able to see it. But they made it sound like you kind of had to know where it was and know it was there that, to be able to get But how it. do we know that's where it was? I mean, Alan could oh, have yeah, used it true. and yeah. he could have left it in the laundry room and just, it hadn't been put that's back. That's true. It might you know? have been on, yeah. And so when Betty goes in to get the swimsuit from the dryer, Candy looks over and sees an axe and just goes to town. Because if Betty was bigger than her, because she was taller and she was a little saying. bigger, mm -hmm. and she knows her baby's in the house, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, her baby's there. She's going to fight because how does she know when she's being bludgeoned? How does she know she's not going to kill her daughter? Exactly. And a mother's strength is oh, yeah. amazing when you think your child's in danger. She had to have been taken off guard, which is, I wonder why, because she says in there, I think I hit her in the back of the head the first time. So Chicken shit. That means her back was to you, mm -hmm. right? I mean, really hard for you to hit her in the back if she's looking at you. So that's what Especially I think. Especially if she's shorter and everything. So on January the 2nd of 1981, Candy decides she's moving because... Everybody hates her. Nobody. <laughs> Everybody's calling her a murderer. She's tired of the theatrics and answering the door after cutting the cheese with her big knife. So um, reporters were at her front yard all the time, all the time, documenting what she's doing, what she's not doing, who she's doing, everything. Whatever. So Mr. Montgomery sees that she's becoming more and more upset. So Candy told Pat, if you don't Wait, do so. Some, they're still together? Yeah, they're still together. He finds out about the fair and they're still together. So then Candy tells Pat, if you don't do something about these people, I'm going to do something violent and I mean it. If you don't get these people off my lawn and keep them off my lawn. She tells him, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. So Pat's trying to keep her in the house and away from all the spectators and the, and the reporters. And Mr. Montgomery stated that the harsh glare of public eye is why that they have decided to move. But then he tells them we're moving to Atlanta, Georgia. Like, why would Just you tell them where you're going? Us. It's just going to be a caravan. You know, it's going to be all of these. They're going to be in their car and all these news reporters are going to be following right behind them. So Candy's in the garage. She's packing and this reporter's like in her face. And she's trying to 
like she's showing that she's very upset and she stated, I don't think they'll ever be able to start anew because it's always going to be there. Like even if we go to Atlanta, what happened is still there. So she says, you know, we're going to try, but maybe it'll be better somewhere else. So they move to Atlanta and she becomes a counselor. She she gets her license to counsel people that have been molested, raped, anything that's happened to them physically, emotionally, sexually. She decides to go be a counselor for these people. So she moves there and she becomes a counselor. Alan gets remarried very quickly to a woman named Elaine. They get married and they stay in the area. I found a newspaper article dated November 22nd of 1984, which is really sad. That state that Elisa and Bethany, which were the one-year-old that was left in the home, mm-hmm. and Elisa was the older one that was she staying. Was five. Mm-hmm. Yes. That the children are taken away from Alan and Elaine because of abuse. So that had to be the new woman because that wasn't happening before. Well, or maybe it was. I mean, maybe because he he was out of town all the time. He was working all the time and he was gone. But I can't imagine Betty abusing. I mean, she also was a teacher. So I just can't imagine Betty doing that. But they were a ward of the state. That's terrible. So so Betty's parents end up adopting them and finish raising them. So what kind of physical abuse? It didn't say. Okay. It just said um, the children were taken from them due to abuse. Okay. And they were part of the state until... Her parents were cleared, and then her parents took them, and then they finished raising them. So fast forward to 2004, reporters reached out to Candy to find out how she's living life in Georgia and everything, and she said, write this down. (laughs) I'm, I'm telling you in big, bold, black letters, I'm not interested. And she hung up. Oh, still with the theatrics. So she has, she doesn't want any part of it. She doesn't want to talk about it. That was something that happened and she doesn't want to talk about it. So as of 2017, Candy still lives in Georgia, but she now lives in Dawsonville. And she goes by her maiden name, Candace Wheeler, because her and Pat divorced shortly after moving to Georgia. Uh, She works now with her oldest daughter, Jennifer. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer is a mental health therapist to teens and adults suffering from depression, which is wonderful. Yeah. We need more of that in the world. Absolutely. Good for her. Candy, I mean, she did have some mental problem. I mean, she, even if you have to have something going on to be able to take another person's life. And not really. I mean, if it was self-defense, then absolutely getting them away from you and getting away, anyone would do that. But the way that it happened, I mean, if she... If she did it the way we think she did it, there's something mental going on there. Well, and there doesn't seem to be very much remorse. Not that we've seen. I mean, if if there's remorse, it's happening behind closed doors where nobody can really even see. Because nothing that we read or heard says anything about her being remorseful. I mean, there was some sobbing during the trial, like when the attorney was swinging the bat and stuff like that. But was that remorseful or just like, oh, shit. I can't imagine the, what the Betty real, went through. You the, know, there's that, or you know, the reality of what's going on. Like she's on trial for murdering someone. Mm-hmm. So she works with her, and I went to the website where Candy and her daughter work, and she still shows to work there, and she's got like multiple degrees um, to do that. So I guess maybe she gave back in a way. Well, and and she hasn't killed anyone else that we know of, so maybe she turned her life around and mm-hmm. trying to help the guilt by helping other people. Surely she's not taking advantage of the people that she's. That she's helping. Maybe she's talking to guys in cars, looking out the window, asking about affairs. <laughs> that was the craziest part, I think. Maybe that's why she never got remarried. And as of 2017, Alan and his wife, Elaine, divorced. But he lives in Eastport, Maine, and he has a new wife named Linda McClellan. And now they live in 
Eastport, Maine. That's where he is. Well, he's on the I other don't even side know. of the United States. And I point. doubt he has anything to do with his kids because they were taken from him and raised by her parents. But Elisa, the older daughter, is now known as Lisa Harder. She's married to a building contractor with two sons and lives in Newton, Kansas. And the baby, uh, Bethany Gore, married in 2012, and she lives in Las Vegas. So It's crazy how they're all spread out. Like, nobody stayed in Texas. Everybody left. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine being the Bethany Gore that was left behind while her mom was murdered? There was a book that was written about this called The Evidence of Love by John Bloom, and there was also a made-for-TV movie on Lifetime called Killing in a Small Town. I remember watching it when I was younger, and I watched it before I started researching to get an idea, and then when I was researching, I realized that movie is one of the closest things to the truth. I mean, they stick to how many times she was hit, the people that played the parts in real life. I mean, they chose people that look like them mm-hmm. down to the quotes. I mean, they did a really good job sticking to the facts. There were a few things that I never found anywhere else that backed it up. But if you watch it, it was like it's like in a little over an hour, an hour and a half. It was good. Good. So that's the story of Betty Gore. Do you have anything else to add? I don't. Rest in peace, Betty Gore. Case file number 02, Betty Gore, closed.